Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Bernie Sanders is walking away with it. He's doing it now. He's probably going to win his third contest today, big time. I'm wondering whether the, the, the Democratic moderates want Bernie Sanders to be president. I mean, that's maybe a, a too exciting a question to raise. They don't like Trump at all. Do they want Bernie Sanders to take over the Democratic Party in perpetuity? No one else is as hungry, angry, enraged, and determined as Sanders voters. Democrats need to sober up and figure out what the hell they're going to do about that. I'm reading last night about the fall of France in the summer of 1940, and the general, Renault, calls up Churchill and says, it's over. And Churchill said, how can it be? you got the greatest army in Europe. How can it be over? He said, it's over. So I had that suppressed feeling. And that was, of course, MSNBC's former hardball host, Chris Matthews, losing his journalistic cool during the Nevada presidential primaries back then and flipping out, comparing Bernie Sanders' stunning win to, well, Hitler. More about that coming up in our Sizzler segment this week. And we're not talking about the steamy summer weather, rather a sizzling Arts Express hot seat with Chris Matthews, a recurring guest on the show. The occasion is the release of his ninth book, This Country, My Life in Politics and History. But about that startling memory lane MSNBC conversation just uttered, and a call for the Democrats to, quote, figure out what the hell they're going to do about that, namely blocking Sanders from winning the presidential nomination. And apparently they did just that, according to furious Sanders supporters, that is, rigging the primaries for Joe Biden to win. And we've got lots of things to interrogate Matthews about as he takes the Arts Express hot seat, his departure from hardball after decades, willing to talk only about the sexual harassment charges leading up to that and not about Sanders, though Matthews did apologize to him publicly on the air. Other topics on the table include... What in the world is the relevance of this memoir, My Country? What Country? A journey of nostalgia and success at a time when the despairing millennials are furious at his boomer generation for leaving them with nothing even before the pandemic, his current gig as a visiting professor in Vietnam, and a failure to recognize right in his face the strong ideological current of socialism in their questions challenging him that stuns and impresses him and that he once denounced politically in Sanders. And little known about Matthews, who in his early years moonlighted as a Capitol Hill cop, what would he have done if faced then with the storming of the Capitol back in January? And much more. Here's Chris Matthews. Hello, it's Chris Matthews. Hi. Hi, good morning and welcome to our show. Well, thank you for having us on. I was just uh, doing... I did... uh, Steve Colbert last night until 12.30 in the morning. And then oh. We stayed up and watched. I taped it earlier in the day, but I stayed up and watched it. So oh, okay. A lot of time. Now, your main book title, This Country, if we look at it as perhaps, say, an incomplete sentence, any thoughts about finishing that sentence, My Country? Well, you know, it's the idea. Harry Truman, the president after World War II, came in and he had this confidence that there was a united sort of heart to this country, uh, a uh, country that was recovering from World War II. I must, I guess, say to some extent, celebrating the victory, even though we had the atomic bomb drop twice. But a sense of uh, we would do the right thing. And uh, he did things like reintegrating or actually desegregating the military. And he took some courageous steps and, and, and re- rebuilding Europe with the Marshall Plan and basically being part of building NATO and all that. He did a lot of very positive things. And, uh, but he had the confidence that there was an American voice, that people would get together and do the right thing. And I, and I think this book sort of... Well, no, but I, my, question, my question was, how would you finish that sentence, if it were a sentence? <laughs> um, my country. This country will, will prevail. Okay. And you talk about early on moonlighting in D.C. as a Capitol Hill cop. So from that experience, how do you think you would have handled that January storming of Capitol Hill? Well, I, I wish I would be as courageous as that officer <laughs> who, who d- d- 
detoured them to the wrong other direction, the wrong direction for them, so they couldn't go and attack Mitt Romney. Uh, I worked up there, and I knew guys. I think a lot of them were probably Trump-type guys. They're working guys, white guys from West Virginia and places like that. They'd been military policemen in early in their lives, and I think a lot of them are pretty conservative culturally. I wouldn't be surprised today. There's a lot of Trumpites among the ranks. But I also knew among their patriotic feelings about the Capitol. And one guy I remember distinctly saying to me, I would die for this building. And then he said, I wouldn't die for that, that uh, riverboat down the street, meaning the White House. And what would you uh, have done if you were there I as a I think I would have done my job. I mean, I had a gun. <laughs> I don't know, but you couldn't use the gun. I, I, that's a great question. I would have pushed back against the crowd probably the way those guys and women did. They, they didn't have great – they didn't have riot gear. You know, back when I was there, there was a big march on the, a, a big uh, moratorium anti-war protest. And I had a friend of mine from the Peace Corps in that protest, where I found out later. And you know what they did? Instead of uh, coming in unarmed, they had a whole riot squad down in the basement of the Capitol ready to go if it got out of hand. In other words, they were ready for reinforcement to do their job. I always wonder why they didn't do something like that on January 6th. Why weren't they ready under the ground of the Capitol if there was going to be a physical assault on the doors, they could get that riot team out there with their riot equipment and stopped it with the, they, you know, the shields and everything. They could have done it, but uh, they didn't prepare the way we did in the old days. And any last word as discussed in your book about your departure from hardball? Well, I've been consistent. Uh, I've, I will remain consistent. It was my fault. I uh, made a comment, a series of comments to a woman getting makeup in a makeup chair. And uh, you know what we used to consider in the old days of uh, compliments? are not compliments, and they never were, but uh, they're especially not appropriate in the workplace. I've said this from the date this story ran, and I said it wasn't the first time I've done that, and it was my fault, and I've encouraged people to, to uh, accept that it's, don't blame the messenger, I'm the one that did it. So yeah. I've been consistent about this, and I, lo- I gave up my you know, 20-year t- uh, hosting of Hardball. Mm. I didn't like doing it. I still don't. I still miss having to... You know, I miss the audience. I miss the people that stop me and say, I miss you. Of course I do. Yeah. Now, the timing of your book, your book is filled with wild adventures and opportunities. But for a cynical millennial generation today, and what they refer to as your boomer generation a lot on social media, as making it getting rich or successful and leaving them with nothing even before the pandemic, what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, I think our generation was very good at, at, at what the millennials are good at, too. I think we raised a lot of questions. We raised a lot of hell about civil rights. Uh, our generation was the one that really made noise about the topic and went down south. Three guys were buried alive down there. I mean, our generation is, is much to be proud of. Our, our generation stood up against a, a war in, in, in Vietnam that didn't make sense, that was really not good, good for anybody. Uh, I think we made we raised a lot of hell at the right time in a way that the greatest generation from World War II would not have done. Uh, they were very loyal, very patriotic, but to some extent accepting of the way things are. And I think ours was very good at saying, no, this isn't acceptable. It started with the free speech movement at Berkeley in California and it, it moved on through the civil rights and the folk music. And I mean, we were Bob Dylan and uh, Phil Oaks and... Uh, you know, I think we were, I've got something to say, and we're going to say it now. I mean, our whole culture was about shaking up the system and challenging the bad things in our system. So I think we have more in common with the, with the millennials than either side has recognized. And in writing your book, this is your ninth book, and looking back on your life, what would you say has been the best thing and the worst thing about being Chris Matthews on that long journey? Well, <laughs> I'm not God. <laughs> this is a very religious question. Uh, I think, well, this is something, you know, Beryl Markham, did you ever read her book, West with the Night? No. She's a wonderful writer. Hemingway, in fact, said she was better than him, and that's quite an encomium from an egoist, egoist. But she said uh, the only way you can distinguish between an impulse and an inspiration is when you get to the consequences. And uh, I think that's delightful, because so much of life you do spur the moment, and it's the right thing to do. I've spent a lot of time in my life taking chances, going, going to Africa for two years, uh, going to Capitol Hill looking for a job, knowing nobody, 
running for Congress in Philly knowing nobody. I took a lot of chances, hitchhiking through Africa all by myself with just my thumb. I, I've done a lot of things that I'm very happy and proud of. In fact, I savor that I've done. And then other times I've operated on impulse, said something maybe on the air, maybe privately, that I wish I hadn't. But, you know, what impulse versus inspiration comes down to the, uh, you know, sorting through the consequences. Sort of left with your, your tendency not to be deliberative, and, uh, and that has high stakes. I think we have time for one more question. You're also a visiting university professor in Vietnam. What are you up to in that regard, and why were you interested in teaching in Vietnam? Well, first of all, well, luckily I just got upgraded to Distinguished Professor of American ah. Politics and, um, and, and Media. I love it because, first of all, it's one of the ironies of history that they really want to learn our culture, our politics. I mean, just think about this. Some of the questions I get from the students over there, they're about late teens, early 20s. Uh, why was James Bennett removed from the New York Times? Or uh, tell me more about the 1619 Project. Or should Trump have been uh, banned by Twitter? These questions are state-of-the-art. They are, they're the questions we have. They're not easy answers. And they're already grappling with them. Over there, on the opposite side of the, of the globe, born to a different language and culture and ideology. And there they are trying to understand us so well. And the, I, I love teaching students who really want to learn. And they do. Okay, well, thank you so much, Chris Matthews, for calling into our show. It's an honor. Thank you so much. Great questions, and not always easy to answer, but thank you very much. <laughs> okay, bye. Thank you. thank you. And This Country is published by Simon & Trista Press. And coming up next on Arts Express... Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This time I was in the country where the night should have been nothing but peace and quiet. But a pair of angry eagles changed all that. One was solid gold and too close to a battered corpse. The other weighed 160 pounds and was too quick with his fists. It happened like this. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Angry Eagle. Hello. Philip Marlowe, please. Clover Lake, California, calling. This is Marlowe. One moment, sir. Go ahead on your call to Los Angeles, please. Hello, Marlowe. Babe Durney. Remember me? Light heavy contender in 39? Oh, yeah. Sure, I remember you. Good. You still have that bar in Southgate? No, no. I'm back in the game. Oh. Trainer this time for a welterweight that's good. His name's Danny Eagle, and he's another Barney Ross, believe me. No kidding. Yeah, but he's in trouble. Come on out, will you, Phil? Clover Lake's only 20 miles. You can be here by 6. It's just outside of Malibu, up in the hill. Well, what's your boy's trouble, babe? Uh, plenty. And it could end up being his life. Now step on it, Phil. Oh, and, and listen, you're a sports writer from Detroit, not a private detective. You got it? Got it. Leave it now, babe. <laughs> It was an hour's drive to Malibu Beach in a film colony where the convertibles outnumbered the hard tops five to one. And that was a little from Theater of the Mind, old-time radio, with Raymond Chandler's 1950 The Angry Eagle with Philip Marlowe, by way of introduction to Bro on the Global Literary Beat, with an analysis of the many faces of Raymond Chandler, or not, as detailed in Ken Fuller's new book, Raymond Chandler, The Many Faces Behind the Mask. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro assesses that, quote, dripping with sarcasm, contempt, and class analysis in its explanation of how the genre had been practiced by the upper-class detectives of the Sherlock Holmes Agatha Christie school, then reimagined with Chandler as, quote, the interrogator of the class system itself, a wider repression or othering in the wake of the House American Activities hearings. This is Bro 
on the global literary beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, The Many Faces of Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler, along with Dashiell Hammett before him and Ross MacDonald after, affected a startling change in the crime novel. As Chandler put it, he took the novel away from those who commit murder with hand-wrought dueling pistols, curare, and tropical fish, and returned it to the kind of people that commit it for reasons, not just to provide a corpse. This passage from Chandler's essay explaining his technique in The Simple Art of Murder is dripping with sarcasm, contempt, and class analysis in its explanation of how the genre had been practiced by the upper-class detectives of the Sherlock Holmes Agatha Christie school. Chandler is at pains to argue that murder and crime in general is not done for specious reasons and in a way that creates a puzzle for the detectives or as a clever ruse, or, as is still practiced in much of the serial killer literature of today, as expressions of aberrant psychology. A new book by Ken Fuller, Raymond Chandler, The Man Behind the Mask, in its strongest moments, concentrates on Chandler's implied politics in his noir novels, in his focus on a generalized corruption in capitalist society that, with his other two comrades, opened a space for crime novels to have a strong infusion of the social aspects of crime. In Chandler's rendering, crimes are committed for profit or out-of-class antipathy by those either as a way of establishing the fortune that then makes them respectable or to maintain their position on top. For my money, the best of Chandler's L.A. novels, the most explicitly class-conscious in this respect, is The High Window, sometimes called The Brasher Doubloon, which focuses most directly on great fortunes and great crimes, and which today reminds us of the Sackler family, who have paid almost no price for their role in the promoting of their drug Oxycontin, which led to the opioid crisis. Fuller highlights a change in Chandler in the wake of the House on American Activities Committee and McCarthyite purges in which he disavows progressive social content and dawdles for a period on the non-communist left, a movement and a moment that, as Fuller describes, was well-funded by the CIA. For Fuller, this turn in Chandler's sympathies aligns both with his Eaton-like elite education and professing to create literature leading to his perpetual disappointment in that his work was not accorded that status. Fuller has a reading of Chandler's work in the first half of the book that sees his literary career as building to the long goodbye for Fuller Chandler's only real literary novel, and then suffering a precipitous decline. Here the book is on more tenuous grounds. Judging Chandler on the somewhat antiquated and elitist assumptions of whether or not his works are literature, which is admittedly somewhat how he judged himself, leads away from his actual literary contribution. Chandler unmoored Hammett's often critical view of the detective as hired gun of the owner class, and instead followed that other impulse in Hammett, which allowed the detective, since he or she can go anywhere in search of the solution to the crime or to aid a client, to be a kind of interrogator of the class system itself, constantly and smirkingly questioning its assumptions. This multi-layered examination of a society fractured on class lines, and what manifestation of society is not more fractured than status-conscious Los Angeles, is Chandler's contribution to opening an entire literary genre to a wider, more encompassing view of the world. Fuller's way of illustrating Chandler's literary failures, in ways that fill up too much of the book, takes the form of minutely pointing out plot inconsistencies, something which Chandler was well aware of and never overly concerned about. His famous quip about moving the story forward was along the lines of, whenever I'm unsure what to do, I have someone come into the room with a gun and start shooting. It seems a bit of a time waster to keep pointing out the ragged edge of Chandler's plotting when he himself and most readers are not overly concerned with it, mostly because the themes and atmospherics are so strong. The Man Behind the Mask is worth the read for its careful examination of Chandler's overt politics and how this played out in his novels. The book, though, fails to credit Chandler significantly for not only advancing the class consciousness displayed in his predecessor, Hammett, but also in laying the groundwork for an even sharper class critique practiced by his successor, Ross MacDonald, who explored all the dark nooks and crannies of the loathing and disgust generated over the failure of the capitalist delusion that Southern California was a new Eden and land of unlimited promise. This is Bro. 
on the global literary beat, Breaking Glass. And next up on Arts Express, appearing at this time of heightened alarming assaults on the elderly, in particular Asians and women, even though a comedy is Queen Bee's, featuring lots of angry older women confined to a retirement home, but at one point end up overpowering somehow, a beefy guy mugging and attacking them. And one of those stars is our guest, a veteran actress who has been stuck with the sex symbol label for decades, but seems relieved to shed some of that with this movie, Anne Margaret, who started out in Pocket Full of Miracles with Betty Davis in 1961, and won a Golden Globe for that as Most Promising Newcomer, and was nominated for an Oscar for Carnal Knowledge in 1971. First, some scenes from Queen Bees, then Anne Margaret. They're like mean girls, but with medical alert bracelets. I'm interested in joining the bridge club. Someone needs a hearing aid. The roster's full. Okay, well, I heard Janet Poindexter's a real This isn't high school. It's worse. High school, we graduate. Here, we die. Ah, come on, be one of us. We are the cool ones. I've never thought of myself as cool. You're not. With us, you will be. Give me the purse. What purse? My purse. I want you to take your wrinkly ass back inside. We're the queen bees. We don't take crap from anyone. We have got to live every day. Do you want to get baked? <laughs> Did we sleep together? Oh, don't look so worried. That kind of experience is not on my bucket list. Hi, and welcome. And Margaret Olson Smith. That's me. Uh-huh. Uh, thank you so much. Okay, go ahead. Now, what was it about Queen Bees that got you inspired to be part of the film? The thing that inspired me about uh, being part of Queen Bees is that it's all about friendship and new challenges when you're a certain age. Uh, It's hard for people of a certain age to find new friends. And this, when you get to an independent living facility, my goodness, you meet like 50 brand new friends. Um, And you even find someone that uh, you can love. Mm. And it's never too late. (laughs) And what do you feel it is about these queen bees and this story that sheds a new light about older people in movies, and particularly older women, and challenging the caricatures of them we often see in movies, especially in this time of increased assaults against older women. Oh, sure. Well, I think this is great. Uh, When a woman is of a certain age, I mean, you don't don't stop living. And going to one of these independent living facilities, uh, we did film in Atlanta in an actual uh, independent living facility. Um, And I met so many different kinds of people. And also I met, uh, you know, I, as a performer, I, how can I say this? In 1966 and 1968, I received a letter from 3,000 soldiers in Vietnam. They wanted me to come and uh, perform for them. And I wanted to do it the next day, but of course, government, (laughs) I had to wait a little longer. But that was one of the, the greatest things that I have ever done in my life. Going over there at 66 and 68, um, because I'm a performer. Now, speaking of strong women in the film world, your first role was as Betty Davis's daughter in Pocket Full of Miracles in 1961, 
What are your memories of Betty Davis and working with her? And are there any ways she has inspired you and influenced you as an actress? Oh, my, 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 my. I will never forget that at that time, I believe I was the youngest actor on the, on the, uh, on the set. Now, many times I'm the oldest. <laughs> um, I didn't know anything. My first, my first movie, oh my gosh. I was so excited and I wanted to make sure that I remembered every single line. I didn't want to do anything wrong. Uh, and then all of a sudden I was doing a scene and Miss Davis went, stop, stop. Hmm. And she came over and I mean, the gentleman who was directing, Frank Capra, one of the greatest directors ever. And she just came over. She looked at me and she said, makeup, hair. And so makeup and hair came and they did it. She said, and Margaret, this is your close-up. And I want you to look as good as you possibly can. Mm. And then she looked at me after they had worked on me. She said, okay, now we shoot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Don't forget that. That's a strong woman. How would you compare and contrast challenging female stereotypes as in Queen Bees, with the sexualized stereotype you had to deal with for many years, and when you said, quote, the critics had an image of me and they wouldn't accept any other, and I never thought of myself as that. I, I, I was flattered. I was flattered. Uh, like when, when a man, it's, it's different now. I just, when a man came up to me and said, hey, you're looking real good today. I said, well, thank you. I'm so glad I came. <laughs> oh, I think of it's Queen Bees is about you keep on moving. You can, don't be afraid of something new. Uh, dive right into it. Like Bridge, I had no idea. I'd never played. I mean, I played Canasta when I was 10 years old and now I have no idea how to play it. Um, meet, meeting new people and meeting perhaps someone that you will find is very, very special. Don't be afraid of it. Just don't be afraid of it. Okay. Is there anything else that you're coming up in? This is what I'm coming up but I am going to be doing an album of 50s and 60s songs at the end of this month. Songs oh. that I just fell in love with uh, when I was very, very young. Very, very young, yes. And any last word on Queen Bees? Well, I loved, uh, I, you know... <laughs> We were playing uh, playing bridge, and of course, I didn't know what I was doing, but we laughed about it. <laughs> uh, I had so much fun with, with all the ladies. Uh, it's about moving on, about uh, doing what you enjoy, learning new things. Um, you know, it's not over when you hit a certain age. Uh, welcome new experiences. Hmm. Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. <laughs> and when Anne Margaret looks in the mirror, what does she see? I see Anne Margaret Olson Smith <laughs> with her dark brown hair going down, you know, halfway or three quarters of the way down her back. And uh, just so blessed. Yeah. I would never have thought that I, I come from a village in Sweden. Mm. 
called Lo Shabin. And when mother and I uh, left that village, I mean, I was six years old and, uh, you know, we, we spoke Swedish, of course, and very, very dark brown hair. And I had no idea. I knew even when I was four years old that I wanted to perform. I wanted to uh, sing and dance. I never knew I was going to be in movies. Mm. Who in the world? <laughs> okay, thank you so much for calling into the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for calling me my first name. <laughs> And Queen Bees is out now in release. And now on Arts Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. For Father's Day, we have a fatherly story called The Voyage, adapted from part of a novel I wrote concerning an immigrant's voyage to the U.S. It features myself and Linda Shalom. And now The Voyage. Okay, Dad, just speak right into there. Let me just put in a new cassette. Okay. Speak right into the microphone. Here. Yes. What do you want me to tell you? Just why you came here, what the voyage was like. Why I came here? All right, start the machine. I'll tell you everything. Because the olive trees were bare, because the date trees gave no fruit, <laughs> because the memory of not eating was stronger than the minareted sky, the gold-plated spires, because my mother had carried me on her back to the other side of town when my father died, because somewhere unknown there were relatives in New York City, and <laughs> because of all this, I'm an 11-year-old boy sailing on a freighter, my heart beating fast. The icebreaker sliced through the winter flows. I'm in the hold of the ship. I lay next to the bleeding sheep to keep myself warm. I curled up in the sawdust, my bundle of clothes a pillow, the few wooden bunks taken by the men and older boys. And this day on the boat, the crowding is worse, and, and dinner had come and gone, but I was still hungry. And all my possessions were within reach, a pair of extra shoes borrowed from my brother, and, and the gold star around my neck hidden by my shirt. My sister hadn't wanted me to leave, but she knew there was no choice anymore. I was the man of the house, after all. I, I was the man now. If money were to be made, it would have to be in America. I remember it was night, and I turned on my side to stay comfortable on the hard wooden floor. And then all of a sudden, there were beams of light shining in my eyes, and men in uniform came down the iron ladder, shouting orders demanding that the passengers line up with their possessions. And the men ask questions and they're checking off boxes on their clipboard and my heart is beating faster. They must be getting very near the shore, I thought, and my thoughts are filled with expectation and fear. And from my cousins, I had heard remarkable stories about America. I watched the passengers in front of me pull out their money from their pocket and I had almost no money. That was a five dollars. I had nearly sold the gold star my sister had given me, but at the last minute I backed out. Remembered a dream I had the night before 
my dead father telling me to take care of my mother. And my father was wearing the star around his neck. When it was my turn to see the men in uniform, they asked me how much money I had, because without $50, they would turn me back. And I, I looked them at them, and I, I started crying. <laughs> the tears were false. I had never cried real tears, not, not even when my mother died. How can I get the money, I asked. I was trying to appeal to their pity, and, but the men in uniform, they just pushed me aside out of the line, over to one side. But by the bulkhead, by the port side, I saw another boy. Brown boots, gray cap, blue wool jacket. He was a, a little older than myself and taller. And he's folding these newly stamped papers, putting them under his hat, and pulling out money from inside his pocket. He must have been from my country, you know, his clothes, the hair. I stole up to the older boy, and suddenly I turned mischievous. Under the roar of the engine, I confided to him, if you lend me your money to show them, I'll give you five dollars. If you do this, I'll never forget you as long as I live. And I put that $5 bill into that boy's hand, and I smiled brightly with all the charm that I had. And that older boy, he looks at me for a moment, and then he's looking at the $5. He grabs the bill and stuffs it in his coat pocket. And he pulls a roll from inside his shirt. These are five $10 bills, he tells me. Make sure you tell them you have family here. You can use my family name, Hemsa. My God, you're, you're, you are a great, great friend, I, I said to him in our language. And I, I'll always be thanking you. So I snuck back into the middle of the remaining line, and when I got to the front again, that same steward recognized me. He says, I thought I told you to get your ass out of here. But I was ready. I pulled out the roll of money I had received, and I gave a, a little wink to the other boy. Oh, 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 that's uh, okay. That's better than the ship steward said. Uh, what's your name? And I, I, I mumbled something, and the steward spat right, right in front of me. He said, Ellis. Your name is Ellis now. Ellis Walker. Ellis Walker. You're in America now. And he, he wrote the name on the ship's manifest. And where are you staying in New York? And I, I turned <laughs> to the older boy because I, uh, brother, Hemsa. And where does he live? I, I started to panic. I wasn't expecting this. Uh, five, five, <laughs> five. Uh, Manhattan, because I all I knew was Manhattan. Manhattan Avenue, 555 Manhattan Avenue, apartment or house? Uh, house. I nodded. I didn't know. And the officer moved me along. Okay, next. And this older boy, he said his name was Victor. He smiled. He saw what happened. And I, I kissed the money. I made my way back through the tangle of bodies and bowed to the older boy. And Victor laughed and slapped me on the back, then put out his hands for the money. But at that moment, something happened to me. Something happened inside me. The money was like a mother to hold on to. Like a mother. It felt so good in my hand. There was no reason to give it back. Because I, in America, I told myself the rules are different. If someone were stupid enough to give you their money, it was yours to keep. You didn't have to share it with anyone. And I looked Victor right in the eye and I said, no, it's mine. And Victor was dumbfounded. He said, what are you, crazy? I'll, I'll kill you, give it back. And I gave him a grin and I spat in his face. 
and the men nearby are shouting, and then Victor takes a swing at me, but I ducked in time, and I just gave him a blow right to Victor's solar plexus. And the boy doubled up and slipped on a clothing bundle, and he hit his head on one of the rusty beams of the iron ladder, and he fell unconscious. And then my arms and chest were grabbed by two powerful passengers, and I struggled as the men restrained me, and there was screaming on the deck, and I cried out, my money, he take my money. And the people in every part of the hold stopped to watch, and the three ship stewards pushed their way through the crowd and yanked me away. And they were, what's going on here? And I said, and I said, my money, he's tried to hit me. And they said, dirty camel jockey, you foreigners. We'll take care of you, all right. And the officers, they set upon me, all three of them, beating me. And then they threw me into a room under lock and key. It was merciless. When I finally came through, I yelled, but no one would listen. They were ready to throw me overboard. And later the, the boat came to a halt. I heard the door unlock. I was scared. They put me in handcuffs and they escorted me off the boat and out into the large, welcoming hallway of Ellis Island. Oh, yeah, with its eager crush of teeming, send me your tired and poor. But to a side door and to a separate holding cell with two other children. I knew they were ready to send me back. I, I had to get in touch with my, my family somehow, my unknown family in New York City. I knew there were relatives somewhere here, but I had no idea who or where they were or how to find them. All that I had was the $50 Victor had given me and I had hidden, stuck away in my stocking. I had to find a way out, so I, I pretended to cry again. <laughs> Stop crying, or I'll give you something to cry about, that guard told me. I begged the guard to let me out to look for my family, and then I showed the guard $20. Oh, you want out? Uh, it will cost you, the guard said. I will pay you anything, I said. And the guard just laughed at me. Sure, it'll cost you, cry baby. What do you have? And I instantly just cut off my tears. And I flashed my wild, wide smile. I pulled out $40. The guard shook his head, said it will cost you 50 He's, he's raising five fingers. And I nodded and I gave the guard all I had. The guard pulls me out of the cell and pushes me out the back door. The ferry fills up, and I take a place on it. I had no idea where I was going. I could see the lights from the buildings on the far Manhattan shore. So what is it now, 65 years later? The nice New Jersey house Three children, three grandchildren. I never told anyone this story. Children. <laughs> what do they know? And you've been listening to The Voyage, conceived and performed by Jack Shalom, featuring Linda Shalom, with music by Kevin McLeod. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express, with host Prairie Miller. Express with another production about immigrants 
Immigration Stories, presented by the Crossways Theatre in New York City. Asian-American actor and member of the theater, Jeff Lee, introduces scenes from Immigration Stories. Crossways Theatre presents Immigration Stories, inspired by the DACA repeal. The Devisers sought to create a piece of theater that reflects young Americans' feelings about the political climate and their desire to add their voices to the dialogue about injustice, human rights, identity, and belonging. I pledge allegiance to the flag of La República Dominicana and Cuba, China, and Puerto Rico. So, America. England. Or, Ireland. Scotland. South Korea. Nepal. The United States of America. Hello? Well, Caleb, dear, how are you? Jam! It's Caleb calling! Huh? Caleb! Mm. How's New York treating you, Cabe? Oh, oh, that's good. Good to hear. Yeah, not much new here. Well, you know, I have Card Club on Tuesday with a couple of gals from the bank, and tonight was ladies' night up at the golf course, but besides that, you know, we just don't get out that much. Yeah, well, you know, ever since your grandpa had surgery on his hip, things just haven't been the same. <laughs> what? Where did we come from? Well, uh, I know my grandparents were English. Or come to think of it, were they Irish? My maiden name is Johnson. I think that comes from England. Well, now, I know your grandpa has some Irish in him and Scottish, too, I think. Jim, isn't that right? Uh-huh. Oh, well, I, I'm sure I got it broke down around here somewhere, Kate. Just give me a minute. Come on, get off the street. I'm trying to drive here. Oh, God, I'm late to work, and that's for usual. And I remember one time I got so mad at my father, I put a flash around the block saying, Dead be dad, one for child support. With his picture on it. But you know him? Your father really isn't an immigrant. He's the most American Dominican I know. He hated it there. He's an island boy, yeah, but not that kind of island. Have you seen this? All these flyers your mother posted up? Give me that. Wanted for child support? Yeah, shut up. Huh? Where have I been? Here! I've been here, Mommy! As usual. What? When did I come here? Shoot, <laughs> I'm not an immigrant, man. I mean, yeah, yeah, but that was a long time ago. It was a uh, 1970s something, you know, not too far from when your mother was born. Uh, you know, to be honest, Mommy, I hated the art. I was happy to leave and never come back, you know? It was dangerous, and uh, I didn't feel like it was my home. Now, Jackson Heights now, that's my home. Aye, mommy, I don't even remember the plane ride, I don't Scared? Nah, I wasn't scared. I was too young to be scared. As a matter of fact, my grandmother is the one that brought us over. Yeah, yeah. It took us almost a year to make the trip. Well, see, you know, the block is my home. Hit the ground, bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> yeah. Huh? What did I want to be when I grew up? Oh, I wanted to be an astronaut. I fought like a bird, you know? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, but the people here, I like the sound. It's loud, you know? Everybody's hustling. There's all this music, you know? You know? I met your mother on a bus. <laughs> Going to the, the prison up there, uh, upstate. Yeah. Look, my brother, your uncle, 
Ah, he got the porter for him. Well, don't worry about it. You know, he got sent back is all I'm gonna say. But uh, your mother was on the bus too to visit her brother who was also in prison. <laughs> that works in mysterious ways. Anyway, she wouldn't look twice at me. She thought she was better than me because she was Puerto Rican. She was a little, uh, a little princess, huh? It wasn't until we got off the bus that she loved me too. But uh, you know, I tried to stay away because you don't need me. I mean, I love you, but you don't love me. You don't call, you don't visit. No, 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 it's okay, it's okay, I know. I'm a deadbeat, remember? I didn't go to school really, you know that. But you did. All my three daughters did. They're all smart. Smarter than me. Huh? You you want to go to DR? No, no. If you grew up in DR, you wouldn't be this smart. Oh, oh, you're an island girl. Oh, yeah, sure, you're an island girl, right. But not that kind. Immigration Stories, premiering on Crossway Theater's YouTube channel, Friday, June 25th at 7 p.m. Sliding Scale, 30 minutes with Zoom Q&A after the premiere. Director, Divisor Jennifer Tuttle. And Dramaturge, Divisor Kathleen Potts. Featured writers and performers, Caleb Rique, Kayla Rodriguez, Lucius Sale, Bebine Shrestra, Zunieres Velasquez, and Hannah Ventura. And more information about immigration stories is online at crosswavestheaters.org. That's theater with an R-E. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.